0: Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible psychologist, Dr. Thomas Jordan. Hello, Thomas, and welcome
1: to the show. Hi, Zach. Thanks for inviting me.
0: Today, we're going to be talking about healing your disappointing love life. And for those that don't know, Dr. Thomas Jordan has been a psychotherapist for over three decades, having helped thousands of individuals and couples enjoy more fulfilling relationships and experience more satisfying, longer lasting love lives. In 2012, he founded the educational resource Love Life Learning Center. And in 2017, he launched the Healthy Love Life Seminar, leading Love Life Educational with his wife, also a psychotherapist, Victoria Jordan. He is the author of a breakthrough book entitled Learn to Love Guide to Healing Your Disappointing Love Life. A very appropriate book, I'd say, for the Learn to Love podcast. So I was super <laughs> happy to come across it. How are you today, Dr. Oh, Jordan? Very
1: good. Thank you. And yourself, Zach? <laughs> I'm really well.
0: I'm super excited. I'm really happy we connected. I mean, I'm already like 70 episodes in, and I can't believe I hadn't heard of the book literally called Learn to Love.
1: Mm. It's a sleeper, it's a sleeper, you know? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
0: hidden gem, I think, is what we call Uh, it. Oh,
1: yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So you yourself have been a couples therapist for three decades now, and you're married to a therapist as well. So my first question is just about you and your relationship and your life. And I'm curious if you find after this time, do you have to work at your marriage or is it free from any and all conflict? Because you write in your book that finding and sustaining a healthy love relationship is difficult difficult. Challenging, sometimes confusing, and all too often painful. So I'm curious, have you cracked the code, so to speak?
1: In a simple word, no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> only in fantasy. Uh, you no, know, seriously. I think of a love relationship as something you have to work on for as long as you're in that relationship. I think that it's a it's a uh, evolving. Uh, experience to be in a love relationship, and when two people are working on the relationship, that's when it's at its best. So, getting to know the person I'm married to, and vice versa, I believe is a foundation of our relationship. And as the years go by, it deepens. Uh, conflicts reoccur. We we get better at solving problems. I I look at that as an evolution in the relationship uh, over time. So. Again, the answer is no, and it's good to have (laughs) a little bit of humility (laughs) in relation to that issue because working on your love relationship as well as working on your life, your love life, which is a a point I wanna make as well in this interview.
0: So let me ask you more about that because I can imagine some people who don't wanna do the work, right? They're like, actually, I much prefer being alone. (laughs) <laughs> because relationships are hard. They do take a lot of work. Yes. Um, and they also bring up a lot of our own stuff, a lot of our own emotions, a lot of our own triggers. And some people do get hurt, you know, as you mentioned, and you wrote that relationships can be painful. So then some people kind of swear relationships off altogether and they revert to, you know, playing video games all day or something like that. So yeah. Yeah. what do you say to someone who, you know, almost avoids the emotional intimacy with another person because of how hard it feels.
1: Yeah. In my book, I write about the uh, experience of uh, resignation. I think that uh, resignation can happen when a person is disappointed multiple times. And how many disappointments that a person experiences before getting to resignation differs per individual. But there are people who Uh, as you indicate, shy away from relationships because they're too painful. In my mind, there are a set of questions that are important to ask with that person. You know, what type of intimacy issues have occurred in the past that are painful? What have they learned about love relationships that might be replicating in their love life? A person who reaches resignation has a choice. They can stay in that protected state which is obviously limited because they don't have intimacy in their life by doing that. Or they can go back into their love life experience and try to find out what the issues are that might be in control of their love life. In my research over the years, and part of the reason I wrote this book was that I encountered many, many people who were repeating the same love life mistakes over and over again. And in my research, I came to the realization that it was a learning problem, that people learn a lot about love relationships unconsciously. And that's the problem. They don't know what they've learned. If it was healthy, fine. Everything's good. Chances are some aspect of that learning will be repeated in their love life. If it was unhealthy, there's a chance that they will repeat what's unhealthy in their love life. And as a consequence, they'll be... uh, Breakups or repetitive problems that interfere with finding and sustaining a healthy love relationship. So, when a person reaches a point of resignation, they have the choice to do the work of looking inside and figuring out. And this is another concept I use in the book the psychological love life. That our love lives, in my opinion, is not only on the outside between ourselves and others, it's also inside. Our psychological love life is a place in our minds that stores what we've learned about love relationships and the relationship experiences we've had in our lives that have taught us these lessons. And as I indicated, the problem is it's unconscious. If you go up to someone on the street, you know, I've had this thought. I remember mentioning it to my wife. I go up on the street and I I stop someone and say, can you tell me what you've learned about love relationships? (laughs) People look at you like, what? (laughs) What are you talking about? Like, it's not something that we have in our conscious, in our clear conscious mind. Like, this is what I've learned, and it's good or bad. So helping someone bring it out of the background into consciousness permits them to work with it, unlearn what was learned that's unhealthy, and make improvements in their love life.
0: So I really do love your concept of the psychological love life. And it is really important for people to recognize the unconscious and conscious patterns that keep them in the same negative relationship behaviors. And just going a little bit more deeper into it, because I'm a little bit curious how it differs from what I think most people think of this as attachment patterns and kind of falling into the realm of attachment theory, because we've talked about attachment a few times on the podcast before. So how does a psychological love life differ from the attachment patterns?
1: It's easily incorporated into attachment theory. I think my, my emphasis was to develop what's on the inside in terms of attachment, uh, not only what's interpersonal. And I'm also very interested in the impact of trauma, mistreatment, I think that there's a need to develop that aspect of attachment theory. And I I see attachment theory as an umbrella concept that there's a lot of areas to develop underneath that umbrella. My, My emphasis is on what is in our psychology that determines the nature of our love life experience and i'm also i mean i'm 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 a psychoanalyst an interpersonal psychoanalyst my emphasis and my training is on understanding the ways in which interpersonal relationships can be healing as well as a source of uh, of difficulty and problem so i'm interested in developing that because i think people project a lot from their own personal psychology into their love lives. I'll give you an example. I think a lot about the 50% divorce rate, which by the way, goes up to a little more than 60% on a second marriage and more than 70% on a third marriage. And I'm, I'm very curious about that. I think that statistic, it's a relentless statistic that keeps coming back over and over again. It varies from 40 to 50 and back to 50, I I think that that statistic is telling us that there's a lot of people that are not in control of their love lives. And what I mean by that statement is that they're not aware of what they've learned about love relationships from the relationship experiences they've had in life. And as a consequence, they're recreating what's familiar. And I have had I have had many, many patients in my office over the years. I, I'll give you a, an extreme but common example. I interviewed a, a person, a woman, about a first interview about uh, her um, history. And she told me she grew up in a, a family with a violent alcoholic father who was physically abusive. And then she left home. She married twice. She married two men were alcoholic and physically abusive. Wow. And when I uh, the uh, what's also important about this story is that when I pointed out to her is there in, in the form of a question is there a relationship between where you grew up and the people you grew up with and finding two men to marry who are also alcoholic and physically abusive, she looked at me with a face that indicated like I guess the best word to describe it is what <laughs> there was no consciousness there of any linkage and i'm not saying that she's you know demented or unintelligent at all i mean this is a this is a corporate person she just didn't make the link it wasn't a conscious link and because it's not conscious it's impossible for a person i believe to work on their love life in such a situation they're just recreating from experience it's a a familiarity that was learned in the family of origin and i think it, it's because of the context that it has such potency
0: it is interesting because when you do go into psychological research people do find that one of the most common factors of the partners that we choose is the similarities to our parents. But then, of course, if you ask somebody, do you think you chose your partner because of how they resembled your parents? And they'd be like, no, Absolutely. no, no, no. What are you talking
1: about? Like, no, like, it's, it's almost, a, it's a weird and bizarre thought
0: to have. Cause it's like, okay, I'm physically, romantically, sexually attracted to this person. In no way are they like my parents.
1: Right. Well, you're supposed to keep those separate. I mean, I but, <laughs> but, you know, I have a, I have a, uh, a PowerPoint presentation that i'm preparing to do on these topics we're talking about right, and um when I talk about the disappointing love life as a phenomena as something that it's a problem, you know I call it the disappointing love life it's an it's an entity, it's a problem it has conditions attached to it, right, and one of the conditions is the disappointing love life replicates past relationship experience, right unhealthy relationship experience from the past. And when I make that point in the in the PowerPoint presentation, the next slide to kind of back it up is I found these these uh, photographs of four people who picked uh partners who are identical to the opposite sex partner, uh, opposite sex parent in their family. And I put up these these four groups of of photos and you can see the similarity between You know, the two wives and the two mothers, the two husbands and the two fathers. So the point is, we replicate in many different ways. We can replicate physically. We can replicate psychologically. My interest is in the replication psychologically. And I see so much of that, that I think it's important to focus on it.
0: Well, let me ask you more about what those similarities were, because again, I think if we ask, you know, if you ask somebody if their partner resembles their parents, they'd say no way that, you know, my parents are from, you know, Wisconsin. This person's from Florida, right? There's clear, like superficial differences. (laughs) So (laughs) what are those sort of unconscious psychological patterns that we seek and like kind of not even realize we're looking for in our choice of partners?
1: yeah in in uh in my book uh, learn to love i uh, i I describe ten relationship experiences that i've discovered reoccur in people's love lives over time i I constructed this list right abandonment abuse control dependency dishonesty and i i uh, I, I see them reoccurring as troublesome relationships that teach people something about love relationships unconsciously that they replicate. Uh, I'll give you an example to answer your question directly. uh, Let's do abandonment. Abandonment, unfortunately, parental abandonment is a common experience for uh, too many people. And neglect is is close to it. Neglect and abandonment are very common in people's histories, unfortunately. And they can teach a person. One of the lessons that I found can be taught when you grow up in a family where abandonment and neglect occurs is to choose unavailable partners. I've sat with many people who grew up in a neglectful home or abandoning home, and they find unavailable partners. Uh, Married men, if it's a woman, someone who's not really into having a relationship, but maybe... They're looking for a relationship, but they always end up with someone who really isn't. And in my opinion, it recreates the experience of being abandoned, of loss over and over again in a person's love life until they become aware that there's a relationship between the experience they had growing up and the choices they're making in their love life. Now you might ask, okay, well, this is a little mysterious, like how does somebody, I mean, I don't go to a nightclub, to a restaurant bar, to a party and say, okay, who's abandoning in this group? I want to talk to them. Uh, you know, will all eligible, unavailable men or women please go to the right? You know, it's like, they're not doing that. So there's a little bit of mystery in this, how people end up with the very type of person They shouldn't end up with. And so in in my book, I wanted to provide a simple structure, I call it an unlearning method for people to in step one, step one of the unlearning method, there are three steps. Step one is to identify that link uh, so that you get some sense of what's in your psychological love life. Now that's a very important step because once you become aware of what's in your psychological love life change begins consciousness is extremely powerful for us human beings to begin a change process uh, the second step is to challenge this replication challenge this repetition the recreation of this familiar unhealthy pattern over and over again challenge is a wonderful state of mind it you know over the years in my work i i realized that there are stages before people change and it's it's so interesting that it's it's very common for a person to be attached to what was unhealthy and needs to change and be aware of healthier behavior and what needs and what what they're hoping will happen will change. So it's like an internal conflict for a while between a part of oneself that's attached to the old and unhealthy and the other part that knows that I have to practice moving away from that and into something healthier. So that that self-challenge is, is something that can be empowered. And in my work, I, I, I try to help people become super aware of how these automatic patterns start happening and interrupt, disrupt them. And then stage three is I found the opposite to be a corrective that's very powerful. Becoming aware of the opposite. For example, uh, I have patients in my practice that uh, unfortunately have been neglected and abandoned and talk about relationships where they found that pattern, reenacted it, and now they're looking for something different. What are they looking for? They're looking for attachment. They're looking for availability. They're looking for someone who can make a commitment. And so with that in mind, it's like a corrective on what's happened in the past. And the good news is that we human beings can unlearn what we've learned. Once we become aware of it, we're willing to challenge it and practice the opposite, create and practice the opposite corrective experiences.
0: So I love everything that you're saying. And I just wanna kind of summarize what I've been hearing from you so far. So at the beginning of the interview, you're mentioning how you have found through your research, through your work with people, how people, through multiple subsequent relationships and then across different people that you saw that many people were repeating the same love mistakes. And you mentioned a few of them, and I'm just going to list all of them for our listeners, because in your book, you mentioned that there are 10 of the most common unhealthy relationship experiences, and those are abandonment, abuse, control, dependency, dishonesty, exploitation, mistrust, neglect, rejection, and self-centeredness.
1: Yes, and I, I've added one since I wrote the book. Intrusiveness is also a relational Experience that uh, many people have had that can show up in their love lives as well. So I've added an eleventh since I wrote okay. the book. It's an evolving. <laughs> it's an evolving research. Uh-huh. Yeah,
0: that's wonderful, and I'm sure you'll come up with you know with more because you you're know there's, probably
1: more. Yes, I um Absolutely.
0: And so we have these, you know, common experiences, common mistakes people are repeating. And then you walked us through a very awesome three-step process and how to basically kind of unlearn these patterns. So first you mentioned first just understanding the link and then challenging it.
1: Yeah, it's identifying the psychological love life, basically, which involves that link between what you've learned and the past experiences.
0: So you understand and identify, and then we challenge those things. And then finally, we correct it by becoming aware of and cultivating the opposite. Yeah. So let's talk more about those opposites, the antidotes that we want to begin to cultivate, because there is this like simultaneous process of unlearning and then learning. So what are some of the opposites that we want to begin to learn?
1: Well, for example, the opposite of abuse is respect, control, freedom, dependency, independence, dishonesty, honesty. Exploitation, I use the word consideration. Intrusion would be to practice restraint uh, in a relationship, knowing where the boundaries are. Mistrust would be trust. Neglect, I use the word devotion. Rejection, acceptance. Acceptance. And self-centeredness, the opposite I use is intimacy.
0: So I love all those things that you mentioned. And I'm curious how this plays out in the intentional cultivation of these qualities. So we have fairly abstract concepts, independence, consideration, trust, respect. So how does that play out? Let's say I, just a normal human, want to bring these patterns into my life. How can I go about doing that?
1: Well, I would look for in inquiry with you, what has happened in your past life, in your history, that may be affecting your love life. And if we discovered, chances are, if you're complaining about your love life experience, or you've had multiple disappointments, uh, we would come to some understanding, perhaps there's one or more of these relationship experiences that you were exposed to. Uh, For example, if you were exposed to dishonesty in your life earlier in your life, and a repetition of dishonesty has occurred in your love life. For example, you found dishonest partners. That would be the easiest replication. Uh, a more difficult one is if you are practicing dishonesty with other people. More difficult because it takes a little bit more to be open to that reality, less defensive about it. But let's say you you've been you've been finding dishonest people and you are taking a break and you're doing a bit of self exploration to 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 make a correction a dialogue an extended dialogue about honesty in a relationship and how it differs from what you've experienced in your life and the impact it had on you i think would begin to open doors in your awareness about how honesty practiced in day-to-day life is important especially in a, in, a, in, an honest, in a healthy love relationship. And seeing the fact that it's a correction, seeing the fact that dishonesty was painful to you, uh, accessing those feelings as part of the dialogue, uh, understanding how an honesty practiced in your current love life would be an advancement, would be healthier, would be healing, I think uh, begins to convince a person that, uh, honesty is something to look for, to be sensitive to. I've had conversations with people about what it's like on a first date. How do I how do I tell honesty from dishonesty? What kind of uh, what kind of experiences do I I need to be sensitive to? I I sat with a person who had been exposed to a lot of control over control in her life, and she had partners uh, who were very controlling men and it always ended badly. And she was taking a pause in her love life to really figure out how she could change her psychological love life to really be sensitive to how she could filter out controlling people and bring a little more spontaneity, openness, freedom into her love life. So we were talking about first dates and it was kind of fascinating. I remember the interaction we were having and she said, how do I tell if, the first date I'm sitting with a controlling person. So she, we were were going around and around with that. And then she recalled, okay, let me see what happened when my boy, my controlling ex-boyfriend, and she remembered the first date. And, and what she recalled was sitting at a, at a restaurant table, you know, with this man, everybody was well-dressed and it was a special evening, and this was the first date, and pe- she was, he and she were telling stories to each other. And in the middle of a story that he was telling, she had to go to the bathroom. So she interrupted him and said, look, I'll be back in a second. I have to go to the bathroom. Hold that thought. And he said, no, 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 no. No, don't, don't do that. Hang on to that for a second. Let me finish this point because it's very important. And we paused on that memory and what it felt like she put the feeling into words it felt like there was a basic freedom that was being interfered with that having the right to get up off the table excuse herself go to the bathroom come back and complete the story was normal but to ask someone to hold it while i finish is abnormal
0: yeah, it's really important. I mean, one piece of really good relationship advice I heard was like on the first date or two, and this is kind of more catered towards women, is set up a boundary, like any boundary. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> and, then,
0: <laughs> and then see if the person respects it, right? So See yes. if the person's like, oh, okay. Yeah.
1: Yeah. All right. Respect. Absolutely. You respect. Re- re- I mean, because if, if someone's not respecting a, v- a boundary, intrusion, abuse is around the corner control, and, tr- and sometimes you know you you get a bit of a collection of these relationship experiences. Some of them go together. Respect is a very important, a very important uh, relationship experience correction. Um, when you've been abused, that, and I work with many, many, as an interpersonal analyst, I work with a lot of people who, who are overcoming post-trauma in adulthood. And post-trauma issues, always affect interpersonal relationships, especially love life relationships. So uh, being aware of the importance of respect and looking for that in one's partner and, and filtering out people who are not respectful is a very important piece of work for someone recovering from trauma.
0: Yeah, I kind of have a s- silly follow-up question to that along the lines of, you mentioned how we choose partners that mirror the experiences we had as children. And I'm curious, like, why don't we choose the positive ones like we choose the partners that have that mirror the positive experiences because i do feel like in our upbringing we all had some balance of both things right the positive and the negative some balance of dependency and independence some balance of trust and mistrust and maybe like at one point there is an experience of trauma and then that one point comes to define our future relationships for the rest of our lives why don't like those you know, positive experiences that we had.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. It's an important question. But let me take what I said and modify it just a little to make it more understandable. When unhealthy relationship experiences occur, whether or not they get into your love life is an open question. I mean, you can, you can go through an unhealthy experience in childhood and not replicate it in your love life. And I've met many people that have done that, that have made corrections on their own, have had lousy childhoods, and treat their own children much, much better. And they were treated. So it's really the, you know, trying to figure out what's in someone's psychological love life is really an unknown until you get into the details and find out whether or not some of these relationship experiences have got in, others haven't. So you, you clarify it. It's it's unique per the individual. Another point in, re- in relation to your question is sometimes there's a balance between good and bad, and sometimes there isn't, meaning more bad and less good and more good and less bad. So it's really along a longer continuum. And I think what happens when these things are replicated is that people are unconsciously looking for a healing. That's my personal and professional opinion. I think people when we experience something traumatic, something hurtful, uh, that's that's, you know, relegated to the unconscious. It's not something we think about consciously, but it's obviously in the back room affecting. Our, our experiences in life, our love life experiences in life, you know, it's, a, it's something that needs to be fixed, corrected, healed. And the way in which our minds provide that, address that fact, is by recreation. I think recreation is not just some mindless, I'm going to do it over and over again because I'm familiar with it. I think that's a part. But there's also a part that's looking for something better, wants a healing, needs a healing. And I think, you know, this is, this is true in, in my line of work. People come and talk to people like me and, and, and recreate in the relationship with a therapist, often recreate in the relationship with the therapist the pains that they've experienced. Uh, and, and that is an opportunity to move the therapy towards healing. So um that's a big part of the motivation for why there's so much replication.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. I just love what you said. It's so simple. People are unconsciously looking for healing when they come into new relationships.
1: Uh-huh. Yeah. Unfortunately, you know, I think I think marriages and love relationships can be healing places for people, but they can also be traumatizing and re-traumatizing. So Right now, in my, pod, in, in my PowerPoint, I was hoping to, to, make, to give the message in my book, I'm very interested in encouraging people to see their love lives as something they can work on. We work on everything else. We work on our financial life, our occupational life, our social life. Why not the love life? I, and if you ask me, why haven't, why, why why isn't that idea more popular? I would say because the family of origin is involved. We teach so many things in school, but the two things we don't teach, and I make this point in the book, is love and grief. Yet love and grief are two major emotional considerations for human beings. It's not possible to make it through life without having grief as an experience, and there's a lot to understand about grief. Grief can be very painful. Grief can be troubling and confused with depression, for example, or seen as a weakness or a sickness. Grief is a normal reaction to love lost. And I, I, I make that point in the book. But the other the other emotion that's neglected is love. I introduce in the book, the uh, I'm sure you've heard his name, uh, Leo Buscaglia. Uh, mm-hmm. in your neck of the woods in California back in the <laughs> late 60s, maybe early 70s. He was a professor, I believe, a professor of education at uh, University of Southern California. And he unfortunately had an experience where a student of his, a very bright girl, committed suicide. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he had a lot of hopes for her. He enjoyed reading her her work in class and And he was very moved by this. And being an emotional man uh, himself, he uh, realized that her suicide may have had something to do with her love life issue. So he went to the administration of the university and said, I want to teach a love class. My students need to understand love as a phenomenon a little bit better and try to avoid this kind of thing. And they laughed at him. Leo, don't you have something better to do with your time? It's not scientific. and blah, blah, blah. He persisted, really persisted. They finally granted him a place to have the class. No credit. He taught it for four years, standing room only, 100 students enrolled each time. He was so moved by the experience, he cried in the first session and said, I don't know the first thing about love. We'll learn together. <laughs> And, and he wrote a series of books about love and learning as a consequence of, of conducting that class. Why isn't there more of that? In my line of work, love life is a source of suffering and pain for a lot of people. I, I, had, a, I had a person review my book, right? Wrote a book review and said one of the first statements in the review was love is a very important topic. We, there should be more books about this. People suicide and homicide over love. I was taken by those two clinical words like suicide, homicide, it's true.
0: No, it's absolutely true. I mean, we teach our kids so much, but we don't teach them often what is most essential and often about the realities of love and all the things we've been talking about. And that too was a huge impetus behind this podcast was just getting so much of this really important information out into the world. Earlier when you were talking about how the divorce rate is 50% and it's kind of hovering around that, you know, I was thinking like, well, if I said, for example, fifty percent of the humans being born today are male,
1: <laughs> okay. like, that would just be perfectly
0: natural, right? It even be, it'd just be a natural outcrop of life. And I was like, is this is this also a reality of love? And yeah, I was just pondering that, you know, throughout our interview. What do you mean, the
1: reality of love is that 50% of marriages will divorce, which probably is very high. I mean, if you're not married, but you're still in a committed relationship, I wonder what the statistic is. I would I would think it'd be bigger that breakups would be, it would be a higher statistic because the legal pressures to remain married are not there, for example. So are you suggesting that the implication is, you know, 50% of love relationships will will end up in breakup it's just a fact a fact of life
0: well, I was I was pondering the question, right? Like, is this just a a natural inherent quality of love that half of marriages are going to end, or if you even if you include breakups, then it's like you know ninety ninety five percent. And you know the conclusion I'm coming to now is just that. Well, this is the result of the lack of learning and education around love and relationships. Like, it's a man. It's manifesting in people's relationships failing because they don't know and they don't have the, the skills and knowledge to keep those relationships happy, healthy, and alive.
1: Uh huh. And, and in the beginning of my book, I make a statement, which I, I thought was very important. I, I said, this is not a book about love. This is a book about love relationships. Love is a wonderfully mysterious emotion. Uh, where does it come from? Philosophers, scientists are debating it. Uh, it's unpredictable, it's uncontrollable, as far as I see. You can't make yourself love somebody, somebody can't make you love them, so it's it still has a mystery in it, and perhaps that's the way it should remain. Love relationship is the kind of relationship we form when we fall in love. That we can do something about.
0: Hmm. I do want to ask you a little bit more about this mystery of just love, because you have referred a few times in this interview of love as an emotion. And I want to kind of probe a little bit more into that in terms of do you think that, you know, almost on a personal or even spiritual level, that love is simply a solitary emotion that we experience as human beings in the same category of other emotions like anger, happiness, or sadness?
1: I would say, at this point in my research, love is an emotion with many different avenues of connection. I think it's uh, biological, I think it's psychological, I think it's spiritual. I think it is something that happens, as I mentioned, without prediction and control. It's a wonderful experience, and everybody wants to have it. And I, and I think that it can occur a number of times in a person's life. It's hard to predict how many and when, but it's possible for love to occur more than once. And I think the great tragedy is is how whether or not we're prepared for it when it occurs, because love requires relationship in order to thrive and be healthy, uh, and grow. Love is like a seed in my experience. It's something that can grow. And it's the relationship that we contain love in that permits it to be healthy. You know, another reason I want to mention this, um, another reason why I wrote this book is that I made these changes in my own love life and I devoted a chapter to it. Uh, my own psychological love life because I figured that would probably be the best way to illustrate this um, and it was a, a a motivation to write the book because I wanted to write a book for you know a grassroots book that's simple to read that's clear i wrote it primarily for people who were experiencing these issues um, as i was i mean i up until my early thirties i was repeating things I learned in my family of origin my mother taught me that eligible women were controlling, dependent, and self-centered because she was controlling, dependent, and self-centered. And the reasons for that were complex. Her parents were living upstairs in our home. They were very controlling. She was the only daughter. She had lost siblings in during birth. Um, so her parents held on to her in a very controlling manner and she had learned control. And that was what she practiced in her relationship with her four sons. And When I left home, I took that learning without awareness into my love life. And I found dependent, controlling women, one after the other, had very disappointing relationships. And in some instances, I expected dependency and control when it wasn't even there. That's how strong it was, uh, the learning that I had received. And in an analysis of my own personal therapy, I had an analyst who was aware of some parts of this and was able to increase my awareness of how I was using what my mother had taught me as a template in my love life and as a consequence repeating disappointments that awareness helped me pause my love life take a look at these issues a little more deeply i remember during that period i took some time off my my love life basically and i had a couple of very close Female friends, uh, non-sexual, very good buddies that I hung around with. And and I look back on it like an internship. I didn't have any sisters. And uh, I was trying to find another another source of learning about women, about women. And that's what I did. And during that period, I learned that women could be independent, didn't have to be controlling, didn't have to be self-centered. And I took a lot from that period of time. It was a few years. I took a lot from that period of time. And it was very funny. When my best friend and I separated, she went her way, I went mine. It was shortly after that that I moved in with my current wife. and We got married. My current wife is independent, not controlling, and not (laughs) (laughs) self-centered. So it's like, wait a minute. (laughs) I want to write about this. You know, and and uh, it was a little bit. Analysts aren't supposed to talk about their personal lives just directly, maybe, maybe. I mean, I was brought up in a in a more conservative tradition, you know, here in New York and so on. But I, I'm not. I don't subscribe to that at this point in my career. I think that using our own personal experience to guide and teach and and illustrate. I think is very powerful. And a lot of the book reviews I've gotten about the book, people say to me, the guy walks the walks and he talks the talk and walks the walk. Look at him. (laughs) uh, Chapter five is about his love life. You know, they make a big deal out of that. Like it, it appeals to regular people. They they, look at this guy. Analysts don't usually do this kind of open self analysis like this. So that tells me I made the right choice.
0: No, I think you absolutely made the right choice. I, even now I really appreciate you sharing your own personal story and your your own personal journey because it does really humanize the entire experience, realizing that we're all going through this. We're all, you know, working on our own growth, on our own healing, and that loving relationships do take some work, but it's a beautiful process of healing that just brings you to better, happier relationships.
1: Yeah. And some of that work is on the inside. And that's the point I'm here to make is that it's not only about, you know, finding the right partner. It's about looking at your own psychological love life and making whatever changes are needed on the inside so that the outside is improved and more successful.
0: Well, Dr. Jordan, I feel like you already answered in so many ways my final question, but I still have to ask it. It's the final (laughs) question I love to ask all of my guests, which is quite simply, what do you wish everyone knew about love?
1: Oh, oh, okay. I'm going to say it again because I think I need to say it again. Your love life is something you can work on and it can be done without 20 years of therapy. It can be done um, more directly than you might think. And the work you'll do is primarily on the inside. What is it you expect of love? Uh, And what have you learned about love from your relationship experiences? And if you're willing to look at those issues on the inside, you have a very good chance of improving your love life going forward. And that's what I wish for people.
0: Beautiful sentiment. Thank you so much, Thomas, for coming on to the show. And for our listeners who want to learn more about you, how can they find you?
1: I have a website called lovelifelearningcenter.com. Uh, My wife and I offer love life consultations, telehealth, love life consultations for anybody who, for example, reads the book and wants a little support to get through the steps involved, making changes, and the books available on Amazon.com. Wonderful. Thank you, Zach, for inviting me. I enjoyed myself thoroughly. And I love the name of your podcast. (laughs) Yes, I'm so happy we're able to connect,
0: we're able to talk about the book, Learn to Love, and I really thank you for coming on. Thank you. And I thank you listeners for listening to the show. We hope you remember all the important lessons from today, including that love can be challenging because we do repeat the same mistakes over many relationships as we are unconsciously looking for healing. Some of those mistakes include control, dependency and dishonesty. But there's a path of healing and it involves some work that involves understanding and identifying what's in your psychological love life, challenging these ideas and then correcting them by cultivating the opposite, like respect and trust. And your love life is something you can work on directly through that deep internal work. If you want to learn more about me, you can head to zachbeach.com and learn more about the show at theheartcenter.com. Thanks again, Dr. Thomas Jordan. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. To learn more about the show and your host, head over to zachbeach.com or theheartcenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.